We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn there, starting in verse 11. Do you remember what it feels like to be the new guy, like going to school for the first time? Looking back at my childhood, there were a lot of times where I switched schools, and I was like, I remember being quite nervous the first day of school because I didn't have any friends, I didn't know anybody, and, and it wasn't long before what was unfamiliar became all too familiar, and it was like, all right, when is this year going to be over? Um, and I think throughout our lives, and the longer you live, you think you're go- it's going to be just a thing of the past, you'll never have to deal with it again, but there's that gnawing feeling of being a bit of an outsider, and even when you do get kind of inner circle status, you get that promotion, you get in with that circle of friends, it, you're still a little bit on the outside. You really don't. It doesn't tick that box you thought it would. Um, the kid who knows his way around school, he may struggle to fit in socially, or the girl who works hard at sports, she finally makes the team, but she, she's on the bench. And it's kind of a disappointment. Like, you, you've, you got your goal. I want to make the team, but you didn't get to or you didn't win the championship, or there's things that just are elusive. We can be plagued by insecurity, searching for acceptance, approval, and um, recognition. And it's something that can happen in the body of Christ, too. And uh, we see that in the early church where Paul brought the message of the gospel and others. People received it. They rejoiced to be accepted by God. But then there was this heresy that came in where these Jewish preachers would come in and say, hey, if you really want to be pious, if you want to be accepted by God, you have to adopt these Jewish traditions. You have to keep the law of Moses and believe in Jesus to be saved. And so they were always trying to measure up to some ideal, and they were always falling short. And The Gentiles had been accepted by grace through faith in Jesus, but they wanted to be accepted by their Jewish brethren. And so they adopted a lot of those practices, and legalism was a problem. It it began to create divisions in the church. And um, a lot of letters that Paul wrote was dealing with this very thing, emphasizing the simplicity of the gospel. It's by grace through faith that we're saved, not by our good works. We can't earn the favor of God. We receive it. And though we, we do live in the 21st century, do you find that we still, um, we distinguish people by differences? We'll say, and it's usually a negative thing. Like if you're going to talk about another denomination, another group of people, you'd say, oh, well, they do this different than us. And, and it's in a way that we don't agree with. Or they're different from me in, in this way. And usually a negative thing. Um, But God did not call Jews to live as Gentiles. He didn't call Gentiles to live as Jews. He has made us one in Jesus Christ. He has raised us to a new place where Jesus is our head. And so that's something we're going to talk about today, that we are in Christ and that we have acceptance through Christ. And and so the barriers that are between us, uh, maybe age or ethnicity or history or background, Those are broken down through the love of Jesus Christ and the Spirit who unites us. So it's in Christ that we find true unity, true approval and acceptance and recognition, not that we're awesome, but that God loves us. Praise him for that. Let's let's just thank him. We do thank you, Lord, that you have accepted us in the beloved. You have adopted us as your children. We are children of God when we place our faith in you, and we're born again. We have a new life. We have such liberty. And how often we are slaves to fear, how often we forget who you've made us to be. And I pray, Lord, you would fill us with your spirit. You give us eyes to see, and you give us hearts to believe the things that you're saying to us, the church, and that we take it on board, not just as advice, but as our life, because Jesus is our life. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for the hope that we have in the heavens that cannot fade away, reserved for us, and that we get to encourage and strengthen and support one another and glorify you on the way. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 11 of chapter 2, the book of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, 
that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's writing this letter to largely a Gentile audience in Ephesus. God had called Abraham to a covenant that was uh, like... Um, Abraham signed off on this covenant through being circumcised. That was his pledge that he was in agreement with the promise God had made him, that of him all nations would be blessed, that he would be Abraham's God and, and God would be, and yeah, Abraham would be his um, child in a sense. But that wasn't even on the table, really, to be the child of God. That wasn't really there. It was like, you'll be my God. This is what God... God said to the children of Israel, I'll be your God, you be my people. Okay, so circumcision instituted before the law. And the law gave a command to circumcise all males on the eighth day, that they too were keeping this covenant that God had made with Abraham. And the Orthodox Jews, because they were chosen by God, because they were given the law of God, and they were circumcised, they looked down upon those who were not circumcised, who were outside the promises of God. Because all those promises to the Jews were to the Jews. They were to God's chosen people. And the Gentiles were the outsiders. They, that was not relevant to them. Because them receiving the promises hinged upon them doing their part and keeping the word that God had delivered, right? So they were unclean. They were unworthy of that privileged and responsibility that they had. And in one sense, the Jews were correct. Um, they, were, they are special. There are many responsibilities and privileges. And to this day, when I went to Israel, one of the tour guides says, you know, we make it as hard as possible to become Jews. You Christians, you want everyone to be Christians, but we don't want just anybody to be a Jew. We make it as hard as possible. Um, and the reality is totally true. Lost in the dark without God, Jews and Gentiles. He says, remember how you were once without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth. It means you were foreigners and strangers to it. Having no hope without God in the world. Isn't that a scary thought to be without God in the world? Spurgeon said this. He said, without Christ. If this be the description of some of you, we need not talk to you about the fires of hell. Let this be enough to startle you that you are in such a desperate state as to be without Christ. Oh, what terrible evils lie clustering thick within these two words. Without Christ, without hope, without life. And we may shudder at the thought of being without Christ, but that doesn't mean that we are as appreciative and taking full use of the relationship that we have with God, right? It's kind of like you can appreciate a relationship, but it doesn't mean that you are investing in that relationship actively, right? The description that's given here, without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth, strangers from the covenant, having no hope and without God in the world, that's a picture of everyone naturally born. That's us. That's me and you. Those who are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel cannot lay claim to a single promise that God gave to them because we haven't met the conditions of the law. It's just like an immigrant or refugee from another country cannot expect Australia to help them when there's a disaster. But if you're a citizen of Australia or a permanent resident and they're notified that you've been caught in a disaster or a situation abroad, the consulate will offer 24-hour assistance and seek to give you safe passage they'll reach out and make sure that everyone from Australia is taken care of because we're part of the commonwealth. But if you're outside the commonwealth, that help is not for you. So we're outside the commonwealth of God, the one who saves us, who can help us. God gave many promises to his people, Israel, everlasting covenants that are still in full force, and we are not included in those. Just think about these, Exodus 6.4. This is what he says concerning the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. So God would give his people this land, the land of Canaan. 
in Leviticus um, 26, 6 through 12, there's a sampling of promises that God gave to his people. He says, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies. They will fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the whole harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. God said that to Israel, not to us outsiders. Without God, we were without hope, without his presence, without his favor in a sense, without his presence or protection, without his help. But all this changed when Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He has made a new way because through Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Jesus gave his blood. He gave his life so we could know him, so we could be adopted into his family. So we were far off. We didn't even realize the promises that were available by God. We didn't even really think about God or his laws at all. And yet he has come to us and revealed himself so that we could be born again and saved. And looking through the lens of scripture where it says you've been brought near, that's almost underselling it because as we're going to see, we're going to be made one with him. When you think of near, I think of being kind of close. Like my next door neighbors, they're near to me, but they may not be near to my heart, right? I may not know them that well, but they're proximity near. But he's not saying you're just not going to be near me, proximity. You are going to be near to my heart, but no, we are going to be one. One with the Jew and Gentile in Christ, with him as head. Many of us have been raised in the church. I think about my own sons that have been raised knowing of Jesus and fellowship. And, and we can almost have, a, an, like we assume that this privileged position we may not appreciate it as much as we should, that we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus, that we've been made one through his sacrifice. And what that means, no one's naturally born a Christian. That's something that you're, you do voluntarily through faith in Jesus. The Jews are still God's chosen people, benefactors of God's eternal covenants. The promises of the Old Testament hinge upon them keeping the law which no one can do, right? They could never keep the law. As we read in Galatians, the law was a schoolmaster to reveal sin, to prove that man is incapable of measuring up to God's righteousness. And as Abraham's life shows, righteousness is by faith, not through keeping the law. Moving on to Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. We were once far off, but Jesus is our peace. I used to read this passage thinking that the wall of separation was a wall of sin that separated me from God, which is true in a sense. However, the context is that it's the wall of separation, the hostility between Jew and Gentile because of the ordinances they had. There was this wall of enmity or hostility. Do we see hostility between different groups today? Is there hostility because of different practices, different beliefs? Think about the labor in the coalition, about bikey gangs or uh, the true blue Aussies and those who, who will not learn to speak English or something, right? There can be this hostility that it may not be violent on the outside, but there is a wall there where you're a bit of an outsider. And I think coming from a foreign country, I, I, know it, I know a little bit what that feels like. No matter how much you want to show that 
you're really committed and you want to be part of Australian culture, there can be a wall there with some folks where they just don't know you yet. And they'll, it'll take some time for that, that. And I don't want to say that they're openly hostile, but we all know what that feels like, right? Where you're kind of an outsider and your, your, your accent gives you away or your appearance. You just don't look how people might think. When I was in Israel, people kept speaking to me in Hebrew, and I'm like, what? Oh, sorry. Like, you, you don't wear that you're an American on your face or that you're, you live in Australia. Like, I had no idea. And so I was walking to the Western Wall, and some guy started yelling at me in Hebrew because my shorts were a little too short. Um, but as soon as he found out I was a tourist, he's like, oh, never mind, never mind. Like, all right, I don't have to keep you in line because you don't even know better. Um, <clears throat> So the Jews, they labored to keep this law, fulfilling the law as the ultimate pursuit. Gentiles didn't give it a thought. That wasn't even on their radar about what God wanted or what they should do. Jesus came, and in himself, it says he created one new man from the two, thus making peace. And this peace is not the absence of conflict or differences, but it's unbreakable union by his grace. Through faith in him, both Jew and Gentile were reconciled to God through the cross. The enmity, the hostility that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, where they wouldn't even speak to each other, that was broken because of what Jesus did. The Jews imagined themselves righteous, chosen. They had kept the law of Moses. And uh, this this error was perpetuated, as we talked about in the book of Galatians. And Paul wrote of the Jewish nation. They were close to his heart. He is himself a Jew. In Romans 10, 1 through 4, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now those ordinances are gone because Jesus says. Now we know, now don't get the idea that the law does not have its place. It does. As we talked about during our Galatians study, it is very important because it is that schoolmaster. It is a show of God's righteousness and his perfection and how, fall, how, how we fall short of that. And instead of being Governed by law, we're to be led by the Spirit and governed by the law of Jesus. The law of love, really. Jesus said many times in the Sermon on the Mount, It is written, but I say unto you. And he always upped the ante. He always, he said, it's been, it's been said to you, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have looked with lust upon a woman, you have already committed adultery in your heart. So we see the standards now higher under grace and under love than under law. Because law could only govern the outside, but God's word and God's spirit, he looks at the heart. And he's able to see our motives and our sin on the inside that nobody else sees, but he knows about. And he convicts us of it. Things that we were never convicted of before. The, the fear was, well, if you get rid of the law, people will be lawless. But since the law was written by God and the Holy Spirit now dwells within us, he's written his law upon our hearts. So we'll actually be fulfilling the righteousness of his law through obedience to him when we didn't even know the rule. Like, oh, that's law 326. Oh, I didn't even know that. I was, in loving that person, I was actually keeping the law. Unbelievable. It's cool. So God has not brought the Gentile up to the level of Jews. He has actually raised us both to a new station of being the body of Jesus Christ, of which he's the head of the church. Jesus is our peace. That's peace that should mark the relationships that we have with God and with one another. Because that enmity, that hostility is now gone. We've been united as one through Christ. And he's more than just our peace. I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 
So Jesus is for us. Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Without Jesus, we would have no peace, no wisdom, no righteousness, no sanctification, no redemption. Nothing. No hope. But in him we have all hope. And when we have this knowledge of what Jesus has done, doesn't it fill us not with pride, but humility that he would call us being those outsiders and that he would draw near to us. And we should never stop boasting in the goodness of God and the greatness of his gifts, not in who we are, but in who he is and, and how awesome it is to be part of his family because it's by grace through faith that we've been saved, not out of ourselves. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Jesus came and preached peace to the Gentiles and to the Jews who were following the law that we might see he is the way, the truth, and the life. This word for peace, where it says he came and preached peace. Jesus preached a message of repentance from sin, but it was a message of peace at the same time. Because that means it's irene, which is by implication prosperity, to set at one again. So when we're in sin, we are cut off from God. But when we repent and we draw near to God in faith, we now have peace with God through Jesus. He's forgiven us of our sin. That relationship's now restored. How we can be born again into eternal life. And isn't, I'm just blown away by how Jesus became a man and he came to earth and proclaimed peace to people who he knew would not listen to him. People who would not believe him. People who hated him and would reject him. If you knew that was going to be your reception, how motivated would you be to go to somebody and preach peace to them? If you're like, they're not going to listen, they hate me, they're going to reject me, they're going to betray me, they're going to flee from me, and I chose them by name. And he still did because he loves us. He passes through Samaria. He has a chat with a woman who's totally ostracized by her own people at the well. He has this discussion with her and reveals that he is the Christ. He touches lepers and he cleanses them. He cast out demons. There was this disturbed and fierce man. They had just tried to chain up, and he was breaking the chains, and he lived in the, among the tombs, and he's cutting himself and crying out and just this scary human being. And Jesus went to him and delivered him and put him in his right mind. He was pursued by fans, you know, a little cheering section who loved eating. They loved hearing him preach. His voice was to them as a sweet sound, but they did not believe him. They were looking to entrap him in his words, seeing how they might seize upon his words and go report how to get him in trouble. He knew the hypocrisy of their hearts and the things they were thinking in real time, and he kept engaging with them. It's like, wow. If we get even a look from somebody that's a little questionable, we kind of shut it down. But he's still going to them day after day, new city, new, new town, and he is preaching the gospel of peace. And he called disciples that he knew would betray him, deny him, forsake him at his moment of need. And it would be fulfilled, as the scripture had said. And then the life that we used to lead before Christ, how we lived in sin, how we lived in rebellion before God without a thought. It didn't even bother us. But Jesus has revealed himself. He's come to us. He's preached peace so we can be reconciled with God. Verse 18 is a great Trinity verse affirming God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one God revealed in three persons. It says, for through him, Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, we have access to God now that we never had before. Jesus promised his followers in John 14, 16, and 17, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
Isn't that awesome that God would give us the Holy Spirit? Not just to know about him, but that we could know him because he lives in us forever. Not just for a little while. So Jesus has given us access to God's presence through the Holy Spirit who dwells with and in all who trust him. Jesus explained it like this. Just like you can't see the wind, but you can hear it and you can see the trees move under the the power of it. So it is in the life of a Christian. When the Holy Spirit comes within you and you're born again, you're changed from the inside and that begins to bear evidence on the outside that's obvious to all because the way that you speak and the way that you respond and the things that you choose to do, your appetites, your repenting of things that you, you were just drinking like water and then other things that you're choosing to do that would not have fit before with your personality. This access to God is like free admission, and we have the freedom to, to, uh, to utilize it as much as we like. Now, have you ever been given free movie passes, and they're good for a year? Now, how many of you never used them? Mm, probably some of you. What if you're given like a gym membership for five years? Oh, boy. You can go as much as you want. It's 24 hours, man. 24-hour fitness, you can be there constantly just getting ripped. And it's like, it's been six months since the last time I went to the gym. So we can have this access. Doesn't mean that we use it. We can have access to go to the movie. It doesn't cost us anything but time. But time is too precious and we, we don't even know how we use it, but it just gets used up. We don't go. We don't make it a priority. And, and the thing is, the admission God's given us to his presence now, it's a free gift by his grace. And we have opportunity continually to be with him. But we're not always taking him up on that. We're not always, that's not always on our agenda for the day. Say, I want to spend time with Jesus Sometimes things that don't really cost us, and that's not in the forefront of our mind, we can take for granted, we, can, we don't appreciate as we should. But because it costs Jesus everything to give us this access, that should motivate us, shouldn't it, to desire to draw near to him, that he was willing to give his life's blood so we could be with him and he could be in us. That's a great motive, not just guilt, I better, I should do better. No. (laughs) Realize God's love for you. It's not about you and what you do. He loves you. That should drive us. Could you please turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Too often it is guilt that we allow to be the driver. Because, oh yeah, I, I feel guilty that I bought that membership and I haven't used it. So it falls to me to make it right. And we can, we can begin to translate that sort of mentality to our Christian walk. And, and it's not guilt that's supposed to move us. It's love, the love of God. Because it was God's love for you. You didn't feel guilty that you were going to hell. You deserve, I deserve to be going to hell. But by his grace, he loved me and he's reached out to me. And he's given me a hope and a future. He's offered it freely by his grace. So that love is to motivate, not my guilt, because I don't measure up. So Hebrews 4, starting verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Jews knew the role of the high priest. It was to atone for the sins of the people, to serve God in the ministry of the temple. And the law said that if you sinned, guess what? You had to get a sacrifice and go to the temple. And you had to confess publicly before the high priest the sin that you had committed. And not only bring the sacrifice, but you'd have to lay your hand upon the head of the sacrifice as it was slaughtered to make atonement for your sin. That is pretty full on. 
I'm like, man, I'd have to live pretty close to the temple. Um, can you imagine? You live like a five-day journey away. You're like, you, you cursed your neighbor. You're like, oh, you get, I cursed my neighbor. You kill it, and you're like on the way home, and three days into the journey, a little road rage. There's a donkey that was in the way. And you're like, ah. So you go back, and I mean, it's just mind-boggling. And I'm thinking about how many of us would actually do that? Would, would actually want atonement to the point that we would be willing to humble ourselves and go to the high priest and say, I have sinned, and say how you've sinned in front of the high priest, the one who has access to God, the only one. And you would say to that person, to his face, on that temple mount, I have sinned and this is what I've done. And here's the animal to atone from the sac- for the sin. That is foreign to us, isn't it? I mean, we, we won't even necessarily confess our sin to someone that's close to us. We're not typically in the habit of saying that we've sinned in a particular way. We may not even confess it specifically before God. We may just say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. But we don't even say what sins. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen it says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So confession is something that's really um, called for, and it's what we're to do when we repent. Now, Jesus, he is our high priest, right? He is the high priest, so we get to go to him, and he's somebody who has experienced personally every temptation that we can face, and he already knows the temptations that we are under. Uh, We need not tell any man to be forgiven, We don't need to confess to a person to be forgiven because Jesus is our high priest. However, um, it's not to be reduced to a ritual. It's something that should be a a common practice among believers. James plainly says this. If you turn to James 5.16, and this is true for priests and prophets, pastors and parishioners. We all are on common ground. We do not receive absolution from man, but forgiveness from Jesus Christ. Often, part of that is confessing to one another, as we see in James 5.16. It says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So it's not because a priest has absolved you or a pastor prays with you but because Christians pray to God in obedience and faith, trusting that Jesus Christ is the one who forgives sins. And it's not because you confessed or you've repented that you earn forgiveness. It's part of the process that we go through to receive that gift as led by the Spirit. When we're struggling under temptation, what peace is provided and we know our high priest, Jesus Christ, can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was not sequestered away behind tall walls and, you know, in a place where the Temple Mount, that's a place where unclean and unholy things were not permitted to go. They had all these barriers, and so there were a lot of potential temptations that they were not exposed to. Jesus was. He walked the streets. He was with ordinary, everyday people. He was in the homes of tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners, people that the, the Jewish folks were very uncomfortable to even be with, to eat with. Knowing that Jesus loves us, that he has shared experiences with us, and he's overcome all of them. Isn't that a huge thing? If you're talking to someone who's struggling in a particular area and all they've done is struggle, they haven't really figured out how to overcome and you're like, so how can we, how, how have you found that you can overcome? Well, I actually haven't. I have no idea how to overcome this thing. And let's just commiserate together that both of us are helpless to do anything. No, well, Jesus has, has overcome all temptation. He was in all points tempted, yet without sin. So he knows how, he, he has the victory, he has the strength, but he also sympathizes with us because he knows what it's like to be a man. He knows what it's like to have temptations all around you, temptations to doubt, temptations to be afraid, to look with lust, to play the hypocrite, to lie. 
he had these opportunities all the time. The same things that we struggle with, he, he overcame. Do you need the mercy and grace to help in your time of need? And when is your time of need? Is that today? When we come to Jesus, he doesn't berate, he doesn't belittle us. He holds us close with those nail-scarred hands. He knows our weaknesses. He died so we could be forgiven. So he wants us to be restored. He wants us to be saved. He's not hoping that we have to struggle a lot more before we come to a place of healing and wholeness with God. He has done that for us. It's will we come? Will we humble ourselves before him? Back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit." The Ephesians were no longer outsiders or strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. There's a big step, isn't it, between being a foreigner and a citizen? Pretty big step. Even a bigger step, an impossible step, between being a stranger and being a child of God. That's like, all right, you could be a foreigner and become a citizen. I could see how that could work. But how could you be a stranger and then become a child of that person? It's really not possible except by God's grace that we're born again. Being established, the church established on the foundation of those doctrines taught by the apostles, the prophets, Jesus Christ, the head cornerstone or the chief cornerstone. That's the primary block that they would set in place, these massive stones. You would get this one block that's plumbed and leveled. And all the other stones for the building, they all plan off of that one spot. That's the kind of the orientation point for the whole building, and that's Christ, that foundation. He's the head of his body, the church. And here the church is compared to a holy temple built on Jesus. It's alluded to in Peter. So 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5, he writes, "...coming to him as a living stone." excuse me, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jew and Gentile, both now as living stones being built one on top of each other to create this house of God, this holy temple, united as one, a dwelling place of God in the spirit. The awesome thing about this is this building is still under construction. As long as we're here, that building, it's kind of like if we were to show as a sign of solidarity and unity, if we were all to hold arm in arm and make a circle around this room, we would have to leave a large gap on one side of that circle because there are more that Jesus has called to come into his kingdom. And it's like that in every fellowship of believers. There are more. There's room. And I love that, that parable that Jesus told where he says the people that he invited, the, the, the king had invited to the wedding, they couldn't come or the feast. And uh, he's all right, get, get anybody you can find. And uh, so they got everyone they could find. All right, get the beggars and the lame and go into every alleyway, find people. I want this place to be full. And they said, we've done what you said and there's still room there's still room. You don't have to be on the outside of that party. You can be in heaven and you can be part of that body right now through Jesus Christ. Complete acceptance in him. Even when all the chairs are filled in this room, there are, there's room for countless more in the kingdom of God. Could you please turn in your Bibles to Acts 7, starting in verse 44. And this is part of Stephen's address to the Sanhedrin in, in uh, Acts 7. And he's going through the history of the Jewish nation, and he's talking about how God commanded, uh, how God dwelt among his people. But even the great 
edifice that Solomon made could not contain him. Because we, as those living stones, are built up a spiritual house. Acts 7, verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? David found favor with God and he was permitted to prepare, to gather some of the materials together for the building of the house of God, for that temple construction in Jerusalem. And it was Solomon, his son, who actually was able to build that and see that job to completion. It was later raised by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt by Ezra, supported by King Cyrus. And Stephen explains, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. The universe can't contain God. He says, heaven's my throne, earth is my footstool. So how can you build a house that I can kind of kick back and stretch out in? You can't. Nobody can make a, a, like something that large to, to try to cram God into that, that man could possibly contain God in any way. There's no building that we can make worthy of him, yet he seeks to find rest within each one of us. He's like, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to dwell within you. The heavens can't contain me. The earth is like my footstool, but I seek to find a habitation in your heart, in your life. So in Jesus, by God's grace, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Solomon took such great care in building the temple that he would not allow the sound of a tool to be heard on the Temple Mount. All the, all the, the stones were quarried and shaped off of sight, and they were brought onto sight because he didn't even want the sound, the, the sound pollution to be heard there. And you think if he took so much care to, to keep and preserve the, that as a holy place and a sacred site, how much more should we look to our own lives and say, I am a child of God. I have been made into a holy temple where he dwells and I need to keep my temple with purity. To desire, not, not to measure up to his, to think I could, but because he's made me this. He's made me part of the church and he dwells within me. I don't want to be a polluted temple. It's so amazing that God would join him with us. And let's turn just as a point of application to 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 15. Paul was writing to Christians in Corinth who did not really understand or appreciate the privilege of who they were in Christ, nor their responsibility to live a holy life that pleased God. There was open sin in the church and there were divisions and there were some great things happening as far as there were spiritual gifts being manifested. The people were still gathering in great numbers to have um, communion together, but they were getting drunk. And there were just things that were off and he was correcting them. Saying, guys, don't you know these things? And these are things that we ought to know too. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, 
which are God's. We are joined as one. We are now a member of Christ. We are one with him. And so we're to flee sin. And we're, we enjoy fellowship, not just when we gather together on a Sunday morning or during other times during the week, but when we're walking in obedience and unity with God's word, when we're living out what the Bible says, we're putting that into practice and having that a priority in our lives that I'm going to prioritize the truth of Scripture as part of my decision-making processes every day, the things that I look at, the things I think about, the things that I do, the relationships I have. And, and instead of being immoral, we're to flee sexual immorality, but seeking just not to avoid sin, because I can fall into that trap of like, I'm avoiding that, I'm avoiding this, and pretty much you're avoiding everything, but what are you doing? So it's better to be glorifying God. How can I actively glorify God? Because if you're seeking to glorify God, you're not just dodging temptations like the matrix, you know, being like bullets being shot. You're like, whoa, temptation everywhere. And no, be proactive in glorifying God, seeking to do the things that please him because he's laid out what those things are. And it's an amazing dichotomy that we can have the Holy Spirit within us genuinely and our body, soul, and mind can be so overwhelmed with temptations and sins that we don't really resemble the faithful disciples we've been called to be. It's good for us in faith to acknowledge what Jesus has done in reconciling us to himself. Like that's a genuine work that God has done. That he sent the Holy Spirit who indwells me despite my failings, despite my fallings. I've been united with Jews and Gentiles as one in Christ. That middle wall of hostility is broken down. That we are now united with Christ. And if there's hostility between me and anyone else, I need to be the one to confess that and to forsake it. And let's be those who come to Jesus boldly to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Do you need Jesus today? Because we can know, know of him and we can know him but it may be a while since we've really availed ourselves of access to him that he has already given us. Jesus is our peace. Do you experience this peace? Or is it just a word? You can if you believe. We're among God's saints by grace through faith. So praise him for that. I just have one more verse to read. Psalm 34. Verse 17 through 19. Let this sink into your hearts. It says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. He already knows the things that we struggle with. He already knows the ways that temptation can get a grip on us. And while this word is fresh in your hearts and minds, before you leave this place, I exhort you, confess your sin. Pray with somebody. I'm going to give an opportunity. I'm going to have Ian, if I could have you come up, brother. Ian's just going to lead us in a little bit of music just before the final songs. And take that opportunity. If you'd like to turn to somebody and pray, just pray to the Lord, our high priest, even now. I just exhort you, if the Lord's put his finger on something, follow the leading of the Spirit in seeking to fulfill that scripture that says, confess your faults to one another and pray for another that you may be healed. If that's something you need, the Lord offers that to you today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us that you do give us healing, wholeness, peace, that hostility, that, that bitterness that used to divide groups of people, Lord, that doesn't need to divide us from anyone because you are our peace who's broken down that middle wall. And now we have access by one spirit to the Father through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for giving us hope. And thank you for releasing us from the power of addictions and helping us to overcome temptations and to flee immorality and, and to do the things that please you. Lord, if we have been like those who have that gym membership and just haven't gone, 
We, we're born-again Christians, but we just haven't been into your presence lately. I pray you would draw us by your grace, that we would be moved by your great love for us and those nail-scarred hands and feet, that, that head that was pierced, that side that was pierced with the spear, your blood that flowed so we could know you. Lord, I pray that you would minister your spirit to our hearts afresh today, that we would experience the joy and the peace of your salvation and that you'd have your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
shelter 